0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes in life, timing is everything. Say, for example, you happen to be coming up for parole and you know that next Monday a judge is going to hear your case. What time, if you could choose, would you like your case to be heard? 9 a.m., 11.45 a.m., or 4.30 p.m.? So the minute the judges get in, right before they go to lunch, or just before they head home. Turns out, It's not even a contest. At 9 a.m., you've got a real shot in front of the judge. If you get slotted in at 11.45 or 4.30, anything's possible, but your chances for parole just took a hit. How time affects all of us, prisoners, judges, everybody else. It's something that's not widely understood, but it has huge implications. Dan Pink has pored over the research on how time can both boost us and sabotage us. He's the author, most recently, of When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan, welcome back to the show. Kara, it's great
1: to be back with you.
0: So let's start right there with the case of the judges. Why would you want your case heard at 9 a.m. versus, like, right before they break for lunch or, or later in the afternoon?
1: Well, this is some remarkable research. It's out of Israel, as you say, of parole boards that shows that uh, the pattern looks basically like this. Uh, Beginning of the day, judges are more likely to grant parole. As the day progresses, you have this steady slope downward in your chances of getting parole. But there's some good news there, um, that after a judge has a break, his or her propensity to give parole goes way back up. Mm-hmm. And then it sinks again until he or she has another break. And then it goes way back up. So if you have any say in your parole hearing, do it early in the morning. So in your scenario there, Kara, right. n- you're, t- you're still right. Not even a close call. Right. 9 a.m. Right. But also doing it immediately after the judge comes back from her break. That would be advantageous too.
0: Do you have a sense of what the drop off is like? Let's say between 9 a.m. and then 11:45, like right before lunchtime.
1: Well, in this particular study, it, the difference was dramatic. You went, you go from about a 60% chance of getting parole to less than 10%. Hmm. See. I mean that and that's pretty amazing when yes, you think about it, it. And then if you go after the judge comes back from her break, you're back up to close to 70. Huh. So if you just through the random assignment of your parole hearing, go before a judge right before her break, and you're likely to stay in prison or continue wearing an ankle monitor. Right. If you happen to go immediately after her break, you're likely to go free. And so here you have a question of something pretty fundamental here, mm-hmm. you know, human liberty. Right,
0: right. Right.
1: The state taking away human liberty, and we like to think that judges are making these rational decisions. And I know that they believe that. Mm-hmm. But these temporal aspects have a big role in judicial decision making, uh, education performance, health care and our own mood and well-being.
0: And, and that, to me, is sad, right? Because you want to believe that you've got all these prisoners, that they're all given a fair shot. And what you're saying is it's not even close to that, like not even close. And and the lack of equality does not come from anything they did. It's just sort of pure, haphazard, random chance. And, I mean, it's hard to think about uh, something like that when you think about the justice system or you know, we'll get into it, um, at, you know, healthcare. Uh, these are just hard things to grapple with.
1: They, they really are. And in this particular case, they ought to, these, these particular things, they ought to alarm us. I mean, there's other experimental evidence showing that um, a really interesting study where they give potential jurors a defendant. And in one case, he's called some of the jurors, he's called uh, Roberto Garcia. In other cases, he's called Robert Garner. And when juries deliberate in the morning, they treat these two defendants on the same set of facts equally, exactly the same. But in afternoon deliberations, they're more likely to exonerate the guy named Garner and convict the guy named Garcia. That is, in the afternoon, there's a propensity to resort to more racial stereotypes, Mm. even in the criminal justice system. So Mm. this is very alarming.
0: What first got you interested in this question of timing and the impact that, you know, the way that we time things, the impact that can have on our lives?
1: Uh, well, I realized I was making all kinds of when decisions myself in my own life. You, you know, mundane things like, okay, when in the day should I work out? Should I work out in the morning or in the in the evening? Mm-hmm. Uh, when should I begin a project? When should I abandon a project that mm-hmm. isn't working? And I was making these decisions in a really haphazard way. So I started looking around for some guidance. And what I realized is that there is a massive amount of research out there on timing. It ends up though being splattered across. <laughs> dozens of different disciplines, you know, not only economics and social psychology, but endocrinology, anesthesiology. There's a whole field of chronobiology. Uh, There's interesting research even in in cognitive science and anthropology. Hmm. And across these fields, these scholars are looking systematically at these questions of timing and when we should do stuff, not only within a day, but in the course of a project, in the Mm -hmm. course of a lifetime, any sort of span of time.
0: One thing that seems to unite a lot of these findings, and we, we touched on it with the judges, is that people have troughs during the day where sure. they're not as productive or they do stuff but it's not very good or their judgment's kind of off. Um, and you kind of see one in the morning and you kind of see one in the afternoon. That's When I looked at that, and, I, you know, and you see it across all these different professions and fields, I mean, that scared me a little bit because it made me think gee, you know, if I'm in a meeting at two o'clock, am I making a dumber decision than I would at 10 in the morning? I I just tell me a little bit about what you found in terms of like those troughs during the day. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, I think what you're saying, Carrie, is the first line of defense (laughs) that simply being aware of this is one of the most important things that we can do. And and this is actually, t- to me, the, the meta takeaway of a lot of this research, which is that we end up being very intentional in our lives about what we do. We are very intentional about who we do it with, how we do it. But this question of when we do things, we don't take that seriously. We, we think of it as a, you know, a, a less important question, and it's right. not. It's a materially right. important question. Now, on the trough, um, what you're better off doing is where you can... Uh, If it's a very important meeting that requires analytic, heads-down kind of work, Mm -hmm. in general, if you have a workplace without many night owls, do that kind of work. That kind of meeting in the morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're doing a more brainstorming session, it's better to do it a little bit later in the day when people's mood is a little higher than during the trough, but they're less inhibited than during the morning. Do the brainstorming meeting uh, kind of then. But if you can't rearrange your schedule, awareness is extremely important as a way to protect against it, Mm -hmm. as are even short breaks. And when we talk about breaks, we're not Mm -hmm. talking about, oh, kick out for, you know, three hours and have a giant meal and a, and a sleep. We're talking about taking 10 minutes to walk around the block.
0: Um, you know, there's all different professions, obviously, um, and everybody has these peaks and troughs and stuff. But I'll tell you one profession, in addition to judges, uh, that stopped me in my tracks when I read about it in terms of their peaks and troughs... Um, Duke University Medical Center tracked what they called anesthetic adverse events. Um, and those are essentially just things that go wrong with anesthesia, um, which is administered for a surgical procedure. So things that go wrong. At 9 a.m., the chance that you're going to have an adverse event with your anesthesia is 1%. By 4 p.m., it's over 4%. So the number has more than quadrupled by 4 p.m. That, I think, would give anybody pause about ever scheduling an afternoon surgical procedure.
1: And I think that's very appropriate, because <laughs> I sure as heck wouldn't. There, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, looking at some of this research on the effects of medical professional performance in the afternoons, mm-hmm. I would not let anybody in my family go into an important doctor's appointment or go in for elective surgery in the afternoon, mm-hmm. period, full stop. Yeah. Now, the medical profession has done a good job of trying to mitigate some of that. And okay. once again, it's things like breaks and timeout. So you look at something like the incidence of handwashing inside of hospitals, big deterioration later in the day. Hmm. Uh, but a way to mitigate that is give nurses well, more breaks and actually social breaks that can bring that back up.
0: And do you think that the medical profession has grappled with this in a widespread way that they understand sort of you know, ironically, the biology of what happens to us <laughs> during the day and that we're not always at the top of our game. I think so. I think they've actually done, uh, in some ways, uh,
1: a pretty good job, slowly but a pretty good job on a okay. number of different fronts. So one of the things that uh – you see and and I, and i write about this where i go to the university of michigan medical center to look at some surgeries things like timeouts where at the beginning of a surgery literally they they stop they pause they literally take a step back hmm. and say what are we doing here you know this is bringing in the very important principle of checklists mm-hmm. um making sure that everyone is is tuned in just being a little bit more intentional about that the medical profession has done a great job with another time issue which is something that was known has been known for a long time as the so-called July effect, Hmm. where uh, young physicians would start their medical careers as physicians, you know, after medical school in July and in teaching hospitals. And not surprisingly, a lot of stuff went wrong.
0: Right. You can see why you wouldn't want your surgery scheduled for August.
1: Uh, no, you would not. <laughs> and, and, you know, because, because you have people who are 10 minutes out of medical school coming yeah, and, you know, right. taking out your whatever. <laughs> right. And, and right. there were all these deleterious effects of that. And it was known as the July effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in fact, in the U.K., where the process is one month later, you get out of medical school in July, start your residency in August, it was known, no joke, as the August killing season. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, it's terrible. But the medical profession has done a great job of this. What they said is, okay, this is a big problem. We've looked at the data. We can do a lot better at this in teaching hospitals. Mm. And one of the things that they've done is that they say, we're not going to let these doctors start alone. We're going to put them as part of a team. Uh, we're going to surround them with seasoned people, and we're going we're to get them off to a better beginning of their physician careers than just throwing them in at the outset and having these negative consequences for patients. So that's one area where I think they've done a spectacular job of dealing with some of these time-based effects that were harming
0: patients. You talked about how the motivation for writing this book in some ways is that you had to make all these decisions. When do I exercise? When do I write? Whatever. Um, And you didn't really know the answer definitively. Um, How has your life changed because of the research you've done? And what's your life like uh, on a day-to-day schedule basis?
1: Okay. Well, I mean I was inching in this direction myself. So when I write as a, you know, as a writer, I basically follow the the pattern. I do my analytic work, the heads down writing. And, and you know, writing uh, we like to think of writing as, oh, it's got to be really creative. But in fact, you know, the main thing is you got to put words on paper. You got to get stuff done. Right. Uh and you got to eliminate distractions. And so I do my writing in the morning during which is, you know, I'm I'm a kind of a mild lark. So I'll do my writing in the morning and I'll try to uh, close off everything else. I won't do meetings. I won't do phone calls. Uh, I'll turn off my email. Get my writing done in the morning. During the trough, whew, I mean, I take a lunch break. During the trough, I, tr- you know, I, I, answer email. Would you say <laughs> the
0: trough is like what one to three? This it is... varies from, from yeah. person to okay. person,
1: but it's you know, you know, you know, early to mid afternoon. Okay, and depending on you know, there's no sort of bell that goes off and says mm-hmm. it's trough time, everyone. Um, yeah. And then in the late afternoon and early evening, what I do is I, I like to do for my research, you know, in, you know, interviews. And I, I like to do my interviews during that period, hmm. in part because I like to do interviews where I'm not an investigative reporter, so I'm not trying to trap anybody. You know, I just want, hey, let's talk about this. What do you think? What about that? What about that? And that recovery period is when... You know, our mood goes back up, but we're less inhibited. So you have, you can have kind of a looser, creative uh, approach to things. So mm-hmm. I have reconfigured my own life in that way. The mm-hmm. other thing I think the most important thing that I do is, is I make a a list of breaks. I every afternoon I write, or every morning when I come in, I write down two breaks that I'm going to take in that afternoon and what I'm going to do. So I'll say one thirty, walk. You know, uh, three forty five. Um, drop something at the post office. I, mm-hmm. There's a post office that's about a uh, an eight minute walk from my uh, my office, so mm-hmm. I can get a fifteen minute break by mm-hmm. bringing something to the post office. I leave my phone away. I actually don't uh, even I don't listen to podcasts or anything when I do it. I just take that break, fully detach, go outside, have that walk, and the key is to be intentional about it. The key Mm -hmm. is to be aware of these temporal effects on our life and to be as intentional about questions of when as we are about questions of what, who, and how.
0: I think one of the most uh, humbling aspects of this research on time is that it doesn't just relate to what happens to you during the day, like you're know you making good decisions at this time of day, not as good as decisions at this time of day, but that it actually extends to a lifespan. You can think of a life like a day, too. And, you know, one of those things is, it, for example, if you graduated during recession, oh something my. you have no control over, it could have a huge effect on your future. Do you, want, do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, this is remarkable research from Lisa Kahn at Yale. She's an economist there. And what she looked at exactly as you're saying, Kara, is that you take two people similarly situated who graduate from college. One graduates in a boom time. One graduates in a recession. And now it makes sense that the person who's graduating in a boom time would, um, you know, have an easier time finding a job, maybe start at a higher salary. What's remarkable about that is that that shows up in people's wages 20 years later. Wow. I mean, that's kind of incredible. And, and as you say, it's, it's, manifestly, it's, yeah. it's manifestly unfair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's manifestly unfair because they had no control over that. But one of the things, you know, we realize about, you know, beginnings have a, a distinct effect on right. our behavior and our performance. And the long-term effects of a bad beginning, I mean, beginnings can linger with us to the end.
0: Right. And endings do, too. I was fascinated to um, see that people who run marathons are disproportionately... Uh, likely to be 29, 39, 49, uh, because they're ending, I guess, the, they're nearing the end of that decade. And I guess they say to themselves, before I turn 30 or before I turn 40 or 50, I want to do this thing.
1: Uh, Endings have that. You're talking about some really fascinating research from Adam Alter at NYU, Hal Hirschfield at UCLA that showed that effect, even something as arbitrary as the end of a life decade, which has actually no physiological meaning whatsoever. You have uh, forty nine year olds three times more likely to run a first marathon than 50 year olds. Uh, and what it shows is <laughs> right, that the right. the effects of endings, endings can right. help us energize. and endings right. have of any kind uh, have a, a very uh, have a profound effect on our on, on our behavior, on our perception, uh, even on our well-being.
0: Yeah. Um, I think maybe my favorite piece of uh, research about this uh, about beginnings and endings was about Hanukkah. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Ha! Ha! The, um <laughs> Sure. Well, I mean, it's what's interesting about this is that is that this is, has to do with you, you can. There's something going on. I, I don't think we know exactly what. So, if you look at uh, well-being over, you mentioned lifespan before. If you look at people's well-being over the lifespan you know, how happy are they over their over the course of their life. What you see is you see a U shaped curve mm. where people are reasonably happy in the twenties and thirties. In the forties they begins to dip. In the or especially early fifties it reaches its exact rock bottom and then begins to tick back up again. This is somewhat alarming to me. The low point for American in well being for American males is fifty two point nine years. Mm. And I happen to be Fifty-three. So you're talking to me at my bottom, Um, Kara. Oh, okay. So, but you have this thing, and what's interesting about this is that you can only get better
0: from here. Is the good thing? That's
1: a nice way of seeing it. So the glass is half full, Dan. You also see this pattern, believe it or not, in great apes when you look at when you have caregivers evaluate how they're doing. Apes have that midlife slump. But there's something about the mid... <laughs> they something have a midlife mi-
0: crisis. That's funny. It's the, yeah.
1: There's something about the middle that sometimes brings us down, that, that makes us slump a little bit. And you see this, some wonderful research from uh, Ayelet Fischbach at the University of Chicago. Uh, Hanukkah is an eight-day holiday. <laughs> uh, Jews who celebrate Hanukkah light candles for each night. One, night on, one candle on night one, two candles on night two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So right. each night they light a candle. Or do they? Um, (laughs) When she actually looked at people's behavior, she found great levels of candle lighting on night one, great levels on night eight. In the middle, eh, kind of a droop. It was also that kind of (laughs) U-shaped curve. And you see this in other experimental research as well. There's something at times that hitting the midpoint of something just, it causes us to slump. Now, there are other times that midpoint gives us a spark, but uh, in, in many cases, that midpoint gives us a slump
0: that means there's just miscellaneous Hanukkah candles in drawers all over the place because you buy them in a complete set. So there's a lot extra out there.
1: Actually, that was the impetus for figuring this out, the mystery of the lights. Why, if you have the exact number of candles you need to light uh, the Hanukkah candles, why does everybody end up with, <laughs> with candles in the box? This is a Talmudic mystery that needed solving.
0: Daniel Pink is author, most recently, of the book When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan, thank you so much.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: On our website, Dan Pink takes three minutes to answer some big questions. When should you ask for a raise? When should you ask someone to marry you? When's the best time to take a nap? When should you start a project? When should you take a shower? And when should you exercise? Here's a little bit of his answer on that one.
1: You should exercise in the morning if you wanna lose weight, if you wanna have a mood boost throughout the day, if you wanna establish a routine. Uh, You're better off exercising in the afternoon, though, if you want to avoid injury, because we're literally warmer at that point of the day, Mm. we've fully warmed up. Uh, If you want to actually enjoy the workout a little bit more, because you're warmer, you actually find it less effortful. Uh, And then also, this is really intriguing, if you want to perform at a higher
0: level. We've got Pink's answers to all of our questions on our website, innovationhub.org.